0: listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk Have you ever noticed when you read the Gospels just how often Jesus appears to be eating? It's incredible isn't it? I would love to do a series on events that happen during meals that Jesus ate. He ate, I suspect, at a wedding feast in Cana in Galilee. He ate with people that maybe we wouldn't want to eat with. He ate ceremonial meals, including Passover at which he took bread. But we find that while Jesus ate, he also reveals himself as The God, the true God, the one and only God. And yet there's something about the eating which is just as wonderful, just as miraculous. Because through it we discover that God became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Now before we look at this particular meal, what I want to do is just to remind you of a little bit of the background. What we find is at the time that Jesus came, his people, the Jewish people, they were oppressed politically, economically, socially. And they were crying out for the saviour that God had promised. They were desperate that the Messiah would come. And everyone had an idea of what this salvation would look like. Everyone had an expectation of what Messiah would do. But then, in all of this disagreement, in all of this debate, in all of this discussion, we find that forward steps the carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus announced himself on the public stage, if you like, at this wedding in Galilee. And if you remember, on that particular occasion, the wine was all gone. But Jesus instructed the servants via his mother, in order that the water could be transformed. And the master of ceremonies took that which the servants brought, and he made an incredible exclamation. He said, most people, they serve the good wine first, and when everyone's a little bit leery, what they do is they bring out the three bottles for a tenner from Tesco. He said, but Jesus... Or he recognised that what they'd done through Jesus, he saved the very best till last. And we find in John's record this, that this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time that Jesus revealed his glory. Do you hear what John says there? He says that this miracle is a sign. Now that literally means that this is Evidence that has been forward in order to corroborate a claim. But in English, we use this word sign slightly different. As we were driving here this morning, there was a sign that said diversion. The sign wasn't the diversion. The sign pointed to something that was greater than itself. And whenever we find in John's Gospel a miracle, we see that they are signs. They are something that draws our attention in order to divert it to something bigger, to something better, to something altogether more glorious. And in John's Gospel we find seven signs... And often associated with the signs are extraordinary claims that Jesus made. And what I want to do this morning is I first of all want to focus upon the sign. And then secondly I want to see how Jesus allows that sign to point away. In order to reveal something that's altogether more glorious. So chapter 6 verse 1. John says... That after this. I think that that means that we should look at what exactly happened before. And actually when we look not in John but in the other records of this account. We find that after Jesus had healed. After Jesus had delivered. After Jesus had taught about the kingdom of God. After Jesus had heard that his cousin John had been beheaded. We find he seeks to escape the crowds in order to go to the far side of the lake. I don't know about you, but there's times in life where I like to withdraw from the crowd. There's times where I need to get away. There's times where I need a little bit of headspace. And I wonder if that was one of these times for Jesus... If he needed to reflect because he lost the cousin that maybe he played with as a child. That he needed time to reflect because he realised that the people had largely rejected his cousin. Just as they rejected the prophets who had gone before. I wonder if Jesus saw that the rejection of his cousin would be somehow prophetic. And would signal the way he too would be rejected and would be crucified. Because the truth he brought was not in line with the truth that they wanted to hear from the Messiah that they were expecting. And so Jesus withdraws to this lonely place. He was there with his disciples and therefore took the opportunity to teach them. And I want you for a moment to picture the scene Here we find on the far side of the lake, Jesus and those who were closest to him. And then one of them said, look up. And as they looked up, they saw not a few, but a large crowd that were coming and heading in their direction. John says that there were 5,000 men who ate plus women, plus children. This was like a football crowd that was heading in their direction. You just know that something in the disciples' hearts just sank because this was their opportunity to press in close. This was their opportunity to spend some time receiving teaching and instruction from their master. It was nine miles walk, around the lake those who had seen those who had received from Jesus had made the journey in order to get some more of the stuff that they perceived that he was dishing out as I have read the parallel accounts I was struck with Mark because Mark says that he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd There's something quite staggering there, isn't there? You know, I often think we learn more about people from their reactions than their actions. Jesus' reaction was not to reject, was not to allow himself a temper tantrum because he really needed this space. But his response was to have compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. Luke says he welcomes them and he teaches them. Matthew says that he continues to cure their sick. But what John does is he focuses upon their fact that their bellies are rumbling like thunder. And so what Jesus does is something very, very tangible and something very practical. I don't know about you, but if you ever go on holiday somewhere and you want to find somewhere to eat, who do you speak to? You speak to TripAdvisor. What you do is take some advice. Who said that? <laughs> Wasn't it helpful? I was going to say that you find a local... Jesus actually didn't have TripAdvisor. If he did, maybe he would have used it. But what he does is he finds a local. He speaks to Philip, who's from the locality. And he says to Philip, where can we buy bread for these people to eat? And yet we find in the Gospel that Jesus already knew that which he was about to do. I love the fact that Jesus not only eats but I love the fact that Jesus also asked questions. I heard on the radio a number of years ago a Jewish rabbi, and he was reflecting upon his childhood. And he said that when he came home from school, his father never, ever said, what have you learnt today? But his father always said, what question did you ask your master? And I thought that was brilliant. And so I thought I was going to adopt that. And so that night when our children came in, I sat down with my son and I said, I'm going to ask you a new question every day, Sam. What did you ask at school today? And he looked puzzled and he said, What when's lunch? (laughs) So I moved on. But Jesus always asks questions. And he asks Pete Philip. Where can we find food to eat? And I love the fact that Philip took the question seriously. Not that there was a place with so much stock, but he actually does his sums. And they actually work out that it would take eight months salary in order to feed all of these people. And Andrew, who seems to have this ministry of bringing people to Jesus, he calls out, and it's one of those, don't panic Mr. Mannering moments, because he says, don't panic everyone, and it seems almost sarcastic, because we've got a small boy with five loaves and two small fish. I love the fact that John includes the detail, two small fish, as if If they were large fish, that would have made the slightest bit of difference. Don't worry, what we've got is a small boy who's brought a picnic. He's not even got any cheese sticks or crisps in there, but he's got five small barley loaves and two small fish. And so what we find firstly here is that through this, Jesus demonstrates his power. A number of years ago, we had one of those rare nights off Jeff where I knew there was nothing in the diary. So we sat down watching the news, very relaxed and hadn't even considered what we'd have for dinner. And then a car pulled up and Tracy turned to me and said, You've invited them for dinner, haven't you? And you forgot to tell me. And something in my heart sunk because I realised a conversation that I'd had three weeks ago and an agreement that I'd forgot to put in my diary. And she said, don't worry, we'll sort it later. And so this couple came in and Tracy actually graciously stepped forward and said, I'm really sorry, but I'm running late with dinner. If you just give me half an hour, everything will be sorted. Half an hour later, we were called to the table and she presented before us this glorious spread. I did not argue, gentlemen, when the next day she suggested we went to a restaurant, the two of us, for food. But you see, I've got a wonderful wife who seems to have this habit, ability of rustling something good up from something little. She doesn't have the ability that Jesus demonstrates here to feed 5,000 men plus women plus children from a small boy's picnic. But the staggering thing is this, that Jesus didn't need the picnic. He just chose to use it in order to reveal his glory. You see, this Jesus who performs this incredible sign... At the back end of nowhere, if you like. He was the same Jesus who John tells us creates all things out of nothing. Who Colossians tells us that nothing was made without him. But he chooses to use that which was offered. And I think that there is a sign here that points to something so much greater. Because the reality is this. That Jesus doesn't actually need you. And he most definitely doesn't need me. And yet, his glory and his grace is that, that he chooses to use that which we offer in order to reveal to a watching world his grace and his goodness and his love and his power. Do you remember way back in time that story of Moses who encounters God by the burning bush? And God says, I want to use you. And Moses says, but God, I've got diddly squat. And he says, what's in your hand? And he said, oh, it's a staff. And so God says, well, lay that down. And the staff turns into a serpent. And it's that that God determines that he will use in order to demonstrate his power. And so the reality is this, that I love to serve God. But the reality is that he doesn't need me and he doesn't need you. But in his grace, just like Jesus used this boy's picnic, he chooses to use us in order to reveal his power. second thing we find here is that there is a demonstration of God's provision. Now if I was to ask hands up, who has ever known that God has supernaturally provided? That just at the right time, God has given that which He prayed for or that which He didn't expect. How many would say amen? Amen. amen? Extraordinary, isn't it? But Paul says this to the church in Philippi that this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs out of His glorious riches. And I know that God. Has been faithful to us and God will continue to be faithful to us in that God will continue to provide. And there's something beautiful that happens here. We find that these people come and it's late and they're hungry and Jesus demonstrates his power in a very practical way by giving provision. And the provision means... That they are filled, that they are replenished, literally in Greek, that they find satisfaction with that which they have received. And being Jews, they would often carry these baskets with them, in which their provisions were stored. And we find that there were 12 baskets left over. And people... Try to determine what the significance of these 12 baskets are. Is it to do with the 12 tribes of Israel? Is it to do with the 12 disciples? I don't know, but I know this. That there's plenty left for me. And there's plenty left for you. And this is how Jesus continues to provide. By revealing his power and his goodness to us. But I think that there is something here that we need to take on board because there's a challenge here that points to another truth that impacts you and impacts me and it's this that as Jesus started to distribute the food he involved and included his disciples and we find ourselves in the midst of a needy world and actually God wants to demonstrate His power and provision to this needy world through you and through me. Through the multiplication of his goodness in the hands of his disciples. A few weeks ago I was preaching on what I believe is the greatest manifesto of all time in Luke chapter 4. Where in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus proclaims that God has anointed him with the Spirit. In order to preach good news to the poor. In order to bring freedom for captives. Sight to the blind. In order to release the oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And I think with that passage. There are two equal and opposite dangers. And the first is that we make it purely physical. And the second is that we make it purely spiritual. You see because. Jesus has changed your heart and because he's changed my heart. He calls us to be good news, to preach and to proclaim, yes, but physically to serve in order that hungry people are fed, in order that widows are cared for, in order that those who are disenfranchised find a place of belonging, in order that the hopeless in terms of their employment opportunities Find hope. Jesus demonstrates his power. Jesus demonstrates his provision. And allows this to be a sign in order to impact our lives. That we would make this Jesus known. But the third thing. And the thing that I want to focus on this morning. And indeed to close with ultimately is this. That through this miracle Jesus will reveal his identity. In verse 1. We find that after this. Jesus crossed over the far side. Of the Sea of Galilee. Also known as the Sea of Tiberius. And then John tells us. That a huge crowd kept following him. Wherever he went. Why? Because they saw. His miraculous signs. We find that there were people here. Because. They were sensation seekers. They didn't want to know really who Jesus was. They just wanted to see what Jesus did. And we find that at the end of the miracle, in verse 15, Jesus left them. He slipped away silently because they were trying to force him to be something which he wasn't. Essentially, they wanted him To be their revolutionary messiah. The one who would overthrow politically the Roman authorities. And actually throughout history people have sought to make Jesus someone he's not. He wasn't the political messiah. He's not a right wing republican. He's not an effeminate film star. He's not make me healthy, wealthy, happy, Jesus. He is who he has always been. And he reveals to us in this passage who he is. And we find as John continues, and I'll read this briefly to you in verse 35, that Jesus speaks again and he says that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never, ever reject them. Jesus said something startling. He said, I am. The bread of life. And actually that for us might seem most inconsequential. But for the people who heard it 2,000 years ago. What Jesus said was shocking. He used of himself the name that God had revealed to Moses by the burning bush. As God called Moses to present himself before Pharaoh. That I am who I am. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus is not who we try to make him. But who he was and is and always will be. The same Hebrews says yesterday, today and tomorrow. And I'm so thankful that we have a God who reveals himself as I am. Not just the God of yesterday or tomorrow, but the God of today, who today wants to reveal his power. Who today wants to provide for his people, and through his people, provide to a watching world. And throughout John's Gospels, we find that linked with these miracles, with these signs, Jesus will often use this phrase, I am. I am the bread of life. Having fed 5,000 people. I am the light of the world. Having healed the man who was blind. I am the resurrection and the life. Just before raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. What Jesus said wasn't trying. What Jesus said was shocking. What Jesus said caused people to pick up stones. Because they said here he is and me a man. Who claims to be God, who claims to be divine. So what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Of all the claims that he could have made, isn't this an odd one? Isn't this a particularly strange and everyday mundane one? Well bread, 2,000 years ago, was actually really important. It would have everyday practical significance. It was the thing that actually sustained you. It had social significance because as an act of fellowship, you would share, you would break bread with someone. It also had deep religious significance. It was God who gave the people bread, manna in the desert. It was bread that was presented Literally in the temple in order to speak of the very presence of God. And here Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, proclaims that he is the bread of life. The one that will bring life, the one that will bring sustenance to you and to me. Now that's a possibility in scripture. That God will sustain us. And that through that sustenance. That he would satisfy us. But I wonder this morning how many of you are truly satisfied with Jesus. Let me share just a couple of Old Testament passages. David says something staggering. He says in Psalm 16 that you... Show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence. So when people think of a Christian who follows Jesus, how many people consider the joy of his presence? Again, we can turn to the Psalms and in Psalm 63, David is having here a really, really rough time. He's fleeing from the king, he finds himself in a wilderness and he says, Oh God, you are my God, I earnestly search for you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in this parched and weary land. And then in verse 5 he says that you satisfy me more than the richest of feasts. Can I ask you this morning, are you satisfied? In Jesus. I know we sing songs about Him, I know we read about Him, I know we pray to Him, and we want sometimes to get stuff from Him. But do you delight in Him? Do you desire Him? Do you feed on Him? Are you satisfied by Him? You see, God doesn't simply want this truth to be a truth. That we understand and give mental assent to that Jesus is the bread of life. He wants that revelation to be a revelation in our hearts and lives and minds. In order that other people would see in you and me where it is that we derive satisfaction and joy and delight from. A scholar called Rabbi Zacharias wrote this. That with all our ingesting and consumption, our hungers are many and our fulfilments are few. And that's true of the world in which we live, isn't it? You see, the reality is that most of us, if not all of us, are in the wealthiest 1% of people in the world. And yet we love to read the Sunday supplements, how the other half live. The other half don't live like that, we do. And yet there's something in us that is driven in terms of acquiring more stuff. There's something in us that still complies with the notion that this world tells us that materialism will bring satisfaction. I meet people and they're so dissatisfied, they're dissatisfied with the job, they're dissatisfied with the career, they're dissatisfied with the sex life. The reality is that Jesus says that I am the bread of life, it's he who sustains us, but it's in him and through him that we can find satisfaction in this life as well as a promise for the next do you desire him? I remember I used to travel away quite a lot. And when I came home, my daughter always used to run to me. And she always used to embrace me. And I thought it was lovely. Because she wanted to be with me. And then once she gave the game away. Because she said, what have you brought me? <laughs> and sometimes we see Jesus and we run to him because we want to be with him. Because there's a gift that may He has brought us. But we find actually that the gift hasn't united us. It's brought some division between us. Because God wants us to be satisfied. Not just with a demonstration of his power. Not just with his provision. All those things matter. He wants this revelation of his identity. Who he is. Not just what he does to be the thing that draws us near. In order that we would receive from him his love and his grace and his goodness, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And in a moment, we're going to share communion. And there's not a lot of bread to be had there, but there is a sign. I suspect it's something that's been bought from the local supermarket. It's not the real deal, but it points to something that is so precious and so wonderful and so glorious. It points away from itself to the one in whom we will be eternally satisfied. And so we thank God for the power that's revealed. We thank God For the provision that's evidenced. But ultimately we press into God. In order that we would know and others would know through us. His identity. Jesus said I am. Not was, not will be. But I am today the bread of life. Who strengthens and sustains and nourishes and satisfies. May God bless you. Amen.